All right, good morning, RCC, and good morning to all of our friends who are joining us online. Glad to have you with us, and glad you're all here. I know we have a few folks who are out of town and traveling because of the spring break and hoping that they're enjoying themselves and are safe and well. Uh, before we do our scripture reading, I want to take a few moments to briefly address an issue that was recently brought to my attention about a recent sermon that I preached. And um, the question came up in the context of a members meeting, but since the context of the sermon was delivered here publicly, I thought a public response was warranted. I feel compelled to do this because someone expressed concern about a quote that I shared when I preached on our first core value of the Word of God from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this sermon took place on February 13th. The quotation was from R.C. Sproul, uh, during which he addressed the issue of the authority of Scripture. And I'm going to show the quote in its entirety. We can uh, bring up the keynote slide here. So here's the quote. It says, uh, R.C. Sproul said, The Bible's authority is so strong, so supreme, that it imposes on us a moral obligation to believe it. If we do not believe it, we have sinned. It is not so much an intellectual issue as a moral issue. If the Lord God Almighty opens his mouth, there is no room for debate and no excuse for unbelief. It is the word of God, and everyone is duty-bound to submit to its authority. So that was the quote, and the concern that was expressed was that this quote sends a message that having questions about difficult passages uh, is due to moral failing rather than true intellectual pursuit, and that uh, this kind of thinking discourages earnest inquiry about the Bible because of a fear of sinning, because they might have doubt. And, you know, the more I thought about it, I realized that this concern is valid. I realized that the person who brought this to my attention is right. I should have been more careful to distinguish between what are legitimate questions or intellectual struggles with tough passages versus an unwillingness on our part to submit ourselves to the Bible's challenging or even difficult teachings. I was obviously focusing on the latter in the context of that particular sermon, and I still do think that can be an issue for every Christian, including me. We may know deep down what the Bible is saying on a given issue and what it demands of us. We just don't want to do it. That is sin, but... I was wrong to not make that important distinction, and I am very sorry for my carelessness. I just want to state for the record that not every struggle to believe or to understand what the Bible teaches is motivated by sin. There is a very important place for earnest inquiry, but I can see how this lack of nuance on my part may have set off alarm bells or even made some people feel like I was trying to gaslight them. That was certainly not my intention. I take my responsibility to teach God's word very seriously, but I should have done better in that particular case. And so to the brother or sister who expressed this concern to me, I just want to say thank you. And uh, before the Lord and before my church, I want to again say I'm sorry for not being more careful. Okay. That being said, let's pray and then we'll go into our scripture reading this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word once again. 
we ask in accordance with Psalm 119, verse 18, that you would open our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there. We'll be reading just the last three verses together, but we'll cover uh, a little bit more of the passage, uh, verses before, but for the sake of time, we're going to read just from verses 19 through 22. Verses 19 through 22. Ephesians 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's word. Well, I know a lot of us here who are sports fans are into March Madness, especially with that Cinderella team, St. Peter's, still in the mix. Unbelievable. We'll see if they have what it takes to get through North Carolina this afternoon. But for me, at least, the good news in the sports world is that baseball is back. I heard someone say amen. Yes, I really didn't think it was going to happen this year. If you're not aware, there was a huge dispute between the team owners and the players union, and I thought for sure this season was going to go down the drain. But... Lo and behold, they came to an agreement, and opening day is now set for April 7th. Amen. (laughs) Now, about a week later after opening day, on April 15th, all the players of every single team will wear number 42 in the back of their jerseys for Jackie Robinson Day. Now, if you don't know who Jackie Robinson is, he is widely regarded as the first black athlete to play in the major leagues. And on April 15, 1947, he made his first appearance with the Brooklyn Dodgers. If you want to see a good movie that tells Jackie Robinson's story, I highly recommend the film 42, featuring the late Chaswick Bozeman as uh, the lead role. The movie came out a few years ago, and I should also mention that it's rated PG-13, but that's mainly because this movie shows in an unvarnished way, the blatant racism that Jackie Robinson endured as he was breaking the color barrier in the 1940s and 1950s. And if you watch this film, you'll see that it does a great job at showing just how phenomenally talented of a player Jackie Robinson was. But he also had to constantly prove himself to his coaches, to his teammates, to his opponents, and to all of the different fans that he played in front of. He may have been able to wear the uniform, but he still had to show that he really belonged on that field, on that team. If you've ever had the experience of being told or even feeling that you don't belong, even though you know you do, well, you also know how deeply that hurts. You know it may hurt even more if you feel like you're being excluded or left out because of your race or your ethnicity. 
And I bring this up because many of Paul's original readers for this letter to the Ephesians may have had similar feelings of not belonging. The church in Ephesus at the time had many Gentiles in their community, and maybe some of our younger youth group students here are wondering, well, who exactly are these Gentiles? What is a Gentile? Well, the simplest explanation I can offer is that a Gentile is any person who isn't Jewish. I would guess that most, if not all, of the people here are Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. I was not born and raised in a Jewish family. More specifically, Gentiles back in those days did not learn the Old Testament and its important people or events. Many of them had probably never heard of people like Abraham and Moses and David and so on. And some Gentiles in Paul's day may not have even learned about the God of Israel, who this God was, until they heard for the first time about this promised Messiah who came and died and rose again. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because the New Testament church began in Jerusalem as a mainly Jewish thing. Most of the very first Christians were Jewish. But as they started telling people about Jesus, the church began to grow further and further out of Jerusalem and into the rest of the world, and more and more Gentiles became believers. Now, what do you think might have happened with this exciting new movement that started primarily as a Jewish thing in Jerusalem? Well, people who weren't Jewish could have very easily felt like they were outsiders in their churches, like they didn't belong. They may have worn the uniform, but they still didn't feel like they were part of the team. And so Paul wrote this specific part of this letter to the Ephesians to reassure his Gentile readers. Now, let me briefly review what Paul has been teaching in the verses before our passage because I think this context will help us better understand what's going on here. Back in verses 11 and 12, Paul reminds his Gentile readers about their former reality. He says, You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, this sounds pretty harsh, but Paul wasn't trying to be harsh here. He was just describing how things used to be. And the way things used to be is that God had chosen Israel to be his visible people in the Old Testament so that they would bring the other nations to him. This was a special privilege that wasn't available to the Gentiles yet. But then Paul talks about what Jesus did to change all of that. Verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and, the peace, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father 
by one spirit. Boy, that's a lot of truth packed in those verses. But Paul's point here is that even though the Jews were God's chosen visible people in the Old Testament, they actually needed his mercy and his forgiveness just as much as the Gentiles did. And so that's why Paul says in verse 17 that Jesus preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. The folks who were near were the Jews who viewed themselves as kind of being on the inside, while the folks who were far away, as Paul puts it in verse 17, well, those were Gentiles who may have seen themselves as outsiders. But Paul's point is that Jesus came to bring peace between God and all people, to both Jews and Gentiles. If you look at verse 16, he writes that Jesus came to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. And when Jesus achieved this new peace between God and both Jews and Gentiles, he also brought peace between these two groups. In other words, those old categories of being on the inside or being on the outside, they no longer apply. Both of these groups now have the same access to the Father, as Paul puts it at the end of verse 18. And more important for our purposes today, both groups also form a new community of God's people. Both Jews and Gentiles are now part of this new humanity, as Paul puts it back in verse 15. This new community or this new humanity is what we now know today as the church. The church, humanity, is such a powerful picture because it teaches, among many other things, that the church is a living organism. Like any human being, the church needs to be healthy to grow and thrive. And that takes us to our passage today. In the verses we read, verses 19 and 22, Paul gives us three vivid pictures of God's vision for the church. More specifically, these pictures offer lessons for God's vision for a healthy community. We are continuing our series through our church's core values. We covered the word of God and worship, and last Sunday we considered the core value of biblical governance. And today, as Pastor John mentioned in uh, his call to worship, I'd like to address our fourth core value of Unity. If you look on our website, rccnaperville.org, and check the page that lists our core value, you see a bunch of tabs in the top, kind of left-hand corner, and the, one of the tabs is about. Click on that, and you'll see things like our statement of faith and also our core values. And on our core values page, you'll see the following description of community. Because according to the Bible, to be a Christian is to belong to a community. And the local church is the place where this community is experienced. The local church is also where Christians should be nurtured and equipped toward maturity and faith and service. Our hope is that consistent involvement in the local church will be one of the most enriching experiences in the Christian life. As I thought about how to approach this core value of community, I found myself drawn to our passage from Ephesians 2. I've preached on it before, but there aren't many other passages other than maybe Acts chapter 2 (laughs) that describes true community in such a compelling way. And so let's dive in. Let's take a closer look at the three images of community that we find in our passage. The first image or the first picture is citizenship. That's the first picture. The second is family. 
And the third and final picture of community is a building. Citizenship, family, and a building. Do these one at a time. First, we are God's citizens. Citizenship is the first image of true community that we find in our text. We see this image in verse 19 when Paul tells his readers, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. If you've traveled internationally, then you know that when you're getting ready to go to the airport, you can't just bring your boarding pass or your state ID and your driver's license. You also need your passport. That's what makes international travel a little bit different than domestic travel. You need to show your passport when you're entering into the country you're visiting, and you also need your passport when you're returning to the States. And the reason is because your passport shows, it's proof that you're legally a member or a citizen of your home country, wherever that is, the States or somewhere else. I was born here in the States, and so I am what the U.S. Constitution describes as a natural-born citizen. It's from Article 2 here, interested in that sort of thing. My parents are not natural-born citizens. My parents were both born in South Korea, and they moved here to the States before I was even born. But my parents both became American citizens after they lived here for a few years. And that's actually pretty common for people to change their citizenship from one country to another. And maybe some of our youth members might be wondering, well, why? Why would anyone want to change their citizenship? Well, for several reasons. It kind of depends on the country, but being a citizen usually comes with certain responsibilities. If you are a citizen of a country, well, then you're promising to obey that country's law and to support the country's government by paying taxes and so on. But citizenship also gives you certain rights and privileges. Like in many countries, if you are a citizen, then you can vote. And very often, you can expect your government to help you or protect you if you are in trouble. This citizenship image was actually very important for Paul. There's a story in the book of Acts where he gets arrested in Jerusalem, and he's about to get beaten by some Roman soldiers, and then they make a very shocking discovery. In Acts chapter 22, we read, As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. Verse 27, the commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. As it turns out, Paul was a Roman citizen. It was not a very common thing to have that kind of citizenship in those days, but for Paul, it came in very handy here. His citizenship, or his membership, to the Roman Empire offered him special protection. And if any of his Gentile readers in Ephesus saw themselves as outsiders in their own church, well, Paul's encouragement to them was, well, you shouldn't see yourself in that way. You're not foreigners. You're not strangers. You are citizens. 
You are legitimate members of your community. And that, my friends, is a powerful picture of community. It teaches us that God wants the church to be a place where all of his people feel safe and protected and secure. John Stott, a pastor and author, has some helpful comments here. He says, Paul is writing while the Roman Empire is at the height of its splendor. No signs had yet appeared of its coming decline, let alone of its fall. Yet he sees this other kingdom, neither Jewish nor Roman, but international and interracial as something more splendid and more enduring than any earthly empire. And he rejoices in its citizenship more even than his Roman citizenship. Its citizens are free and secure. God wants the church to be a place where his people feel secure, where they feel safe, where they feel protected. That's our first lesson this morning about community as we look at this passage, this image of citizenship. The next image, the next picture we find of community is family. We are God's family. We see the second picture in the bottom half of verse 19. Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Members of his household. Christians aren't just citizens of God's kingdom. We're also members of his household. This would have meant a lot to many of Paul's original readers. I remember when I was in college, one of my roommates had a very close friend, like a childhood friend who grew up in a, in a Jewish family, as it turns out. And I remember hearing my roommate having many long phone conversations late into the night as he patiently shared his faith and answered all the different intellectual questions that came up and feeling frustrated every time he hung up, like, man, I don't think he'll ever become a believer and to our pleasant surprise, this guy eventually converted. He became a Christian. But it cost him dearly. When his parents found out, they kicked him out of the house. And I saw this happen actually quite a bit during those college years. Friends who got disowned by their parents because of their new faith in Christ. And I also remember that one of the most important lifelines that kept these friends afloat in their new faith was the support and the love that they received from their spiritual family, from their small groups, from their friends, from their leaders in the church. Many of Paul's original leaders, uh, many of Paul's original readers experienced this firsthand. They knew the pain of losing their families once they became Christians. And so we can only imagine how comforted they would have felt as they heard Paul say in verse 19 that they were just fellow citizens with God's people, they were also members of his household. The lesson for us here is that a church should be a community where God's people feel like they belong. They're part of the family, even if they don't get that at home. Now, I know that some of us here, we've been deeply hurt maybe deeply disappointed by our family. A few of you have even told me in personal conversations that you actually feel closer to your community here in this church than you do with your real relatives. And there's part of me that feels so sad that you've had to carry that kind of pain, but there's actually another part of me that 
feels thankful that you've at least been able to experience some sense of family and belonging here at RCC. God wants the church to be a community where people feel they belong. And that's a lesson from this second picture of family. The third and last picture is a building. A building. We are God's building. If you look at me in verse 20, Paul writes that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. If I could just make a couple of observations here. First, Paul mentions the foundation in verse 20. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, I know that we've got quite a few people in our church who are handy. You're good at like fixing stuff, building stuff, repairing stuff. I'm not like that at all. And so when I look at you brothers and sisters, I can only, I can only stand in awe admiration, not only at your skill, but the money that you're saving by doing it yourself. I am not handy at all. But even I know that the foundation is a very important part of any building. I think most of us know this. At least we've heard this. It's just we don't really appreciate it. We don't even think about the foundation because, well, we we can't really see it. It's below the ground. What we usually think about, what even guys like me think about, is the stuff we can see, like furniture, appliances, interior decor, exterior landscaping, light fixtures, and so on. Now, all that stuff is important, too, and we need to maintain it well. But if there's a problem with the foundation, well that can create some really big and potentially very expensive problems. You may start noticing cracks in your walls or in your floors. Your doors may not open or close properly anymore. You might start seeing some leaks in your basement or in your crawl space. If the foundation isn't strong or solid, well, the entire building won't be either. I think that's why Paul chose to describe the church as being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, what exactly does it mean by that? Well, it seems he's talking specifically about the teaching of the apostles and prophets and ultimately about their message about Christ. I think this is why Paul also refers to Jesus as the chief cornerstone at the end of verse 20. If the foundation is the most important part of the building, well, then the cornerstone back in those days was the most important part of the foundation. In the ancient world, the cornerstone often set the rest of the foundation in place. The cornerstone ensured that there would be proper symmetry and alignment as the wall started going up. A New Testament scholar named Clint Arnold offers some helpful thoughts here. He says, the ultimate foundation is Christ, but the apostles and prophets lay that foundation through their proclamation of Christ and through building people up in their knowledge of Christ and his word. These apostles were important. Many of them knew Jesus personally. They were 
his original disciples. They had heard his teaching themselves. And perhaps most importantly, they had seen Jesus with their own eyes on that first Easter morning in the days that followed. And there wasn't just one apostle. There were at least 12 to make sure that the stories lined up, that they were consistent, that nobody was embellishing any details or adding stuff that didn't happen. And so this is why their message carried a unique authority in the early church. And this is why their teaching is now the church's foundation. You know, when it comes to choosing a church or deciding on a church, many Christians consider factors like, well, how exciting is their worship? Do I like their songs? How welcoming and friendly are the people? Well, hopefully they're friendly. Do our kids enjoy the children's ministry and youth group? I think so. It's here. What kind of work do they do in their local community? Well, we try to do as much as we can. We could do more. And I'm not saying that these things don't matter. They do. I'm just reminding us that what we believe also matters. It really matters. Healthy and vibrant and thriving Christian community starts first and foremost with our shared beliefs. We want to make sure that we are building on this solid foundation of the apostles and prophets teaching about Christ. But Paul doesn't focus just on the foundation. He also talks about the building itself. He says, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, too, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. We see he gets even more specific in these verses. In verse 21, the building is a holy temple. In verse 22, it's a dwelling for God's Spirit. And Jews who are reading this would have understood exactly what Paul was talking about here. Because in the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was... God's dwelling place on earth. But there's even more. The Old Testament temple had a couple of other important purposes. The temple is also the place for worship and for service. If you wanted to have a full worship experience in those days, well, you couldn't just read your Bible by yourself and pray at home by yourself or even with your family. You had to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice there. But if you wanted to offer your sacrifice properly, you couldn't do it just by yourself. You needed a priest to help you because God gave very specific instructions in books like Exodus and Leviticus for priests who served in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. What kind of animal could be offered? Where to do it? How to do it? What to do with the animal once you're finished with the sacrifice? All those instructions. And this was their ministry. This was the priest's service. Well, in our passage in Ephesians, we learn that Christians are in community together as a church. We are now the temple, and we still have the same purpose of worshiping our Lord and serving Him together. That's really what this third picture of the church teaches. We're not just citizens of God's kingdom or even members of His family. We are also the building blocks of God's temple. And so, yes, the church should be a community where God's people feel safe and secure and protected. And the church should be a place where every person feels like they belong, that they're part of the family. But honestly, many schools and many social clubs, many extracurricular activities like 
sports teams and music groups, they offer those benefits. They give that feeling of belonging and security and protection to people who participate. What makes the church different? Well, what should make the church different is, well, number one, our shared beliefs. We have a different foundation. And number two, we have the opportunity to worship our Lord and serve Him together. That's the lesson from this third picture of the building, the temple. Now, when we look at all three of these images together, citizens, family, building, I think the common theme they all share is that the Christian life is best experienced within community. If I put it another way, God has wired each of us in such a way where Although some of us may need more alone time than others, some of us may be more introverted than others, all of us need meaningful relationships with other Christians to experience all that God wants for us, all of his good purposes for us. You know, a few scholars have even noted that as we move from one image to the next, from one picture to the next, the level of intimacy gets closer and more intense. Citizens carry the same passport. Family members share the same genetic code. And stones of a temple are literally cemented to each other. Again, the point here is that the Christian life is best experienced in the context of community. But if I can be honest as I wrap up, I want to say that writing the sermon really tough. It was tough for me. When I decided to keep going on this series on our core values after I had made a decision to step down, I knew this sermon was coming soon, like waiting for me around the corner. And honestly, just honestly, I dreaded it. (laughs) Because preaching on community makes me feel like the biggest hypocrite in the world. And so I would not blame you in the least if you've had a hard time taking anything I just shared seriously. You know, as I reflected on this text while preparing for today, I felt like I was looking straight into a mirror. And the reflection I saw was not impressive. John Calvin, the great theologian, used to say something about this regarding the Old Testament law. He taught that one of the purposes of the law was to be a mirror that reflects God's perfect righteousness. And so when we look into this mirror, one of the immediate effects is that we realize just how weak and how sinful we truly are. But then what do we do after that? What should we do? Should we just sink deeper and deeper into our despair? No. No. Calvin also taught that the law serves as a mirror in which we see our sinfulness, our wretchedness, but then what we're supposed to do next is we're to run to Christ and rest in what he has done for us. 
rest in the mercy and the forgiveness that he secured for us through his death and resurrection. And really, before all of you, that is all I feel like I can do right now with my own feelings of grief and hypocrisy. But I also draw great comfort from the reminder that RCC is ultimately God's church. You and I, we are citizens of his kingdom. We are members of his family. We are part of his building. It's all his. And so we can only trust that he is going to keep doing his good work here. In fact, if you look closely at some of the verbs in our passage, you'll see that they're worded in a very specific way. They are expressed in what grammarians call the passive voice. Verse 20 says that we are built, not we are building, but we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Well, the question is, who exactly is doing the building and the joining here? Well, the answer is, it's not the members. It's not even the leaders of the church. It is God who is doing the building and the joining together. It's all his work. And so the comfort for me And I hope the comfort for all of us is that, (laughs) yes, we are citizens. Yes, we are members of a family. Yes, we are stones of the building. But none of us are indispensable to God's work. God certainly doesn't need me to build his church. No, he will keep doing his work in his way through this community for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you again for giving us this opportunity to receive your word this morning. We pray that you would indeed, by your grace, help us to live out your vision for community as we've seen depicted in these three images in our passages. Would you please help us to be a place where everyone feels safe and protected Help us to be a place where each person knows that he or she belongs, that they are part of this family. And help us, Lord, to be a community that can keep worshiping and serving you as one as you continue building and joining us together through your spirit. And Jesus, we worship you as our chief cornerstone. We have no safer foundation than you. Thank you for coming into our world. Thank you for living in perfect obedience to God's law. Thank you for dying and rising again so that through faith in you, we can be fellow citizens of your kingdom, members of your household, and even the building blocks of your holy temple. We pray these things in your name.